Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hello everyone, welcome to Girls on Film. My name is Anna Smith and this is our birthday celebration. Thank you so much for coming. Girls on Film was one year old, I can't believe it. And it's so good to be back here at home, which is like our second home in a way, love it. Um, so if you don't know about Girls on Film, it's a podcast that looks at films from a female perspective. We generally have all women, occasionally we've had men on if they do really great films about women. And men are very welcome to the podcast, uh, but we like to look at things through a female lens. So this week we'll be talking about new releases, female desire on film. There will also be a Q&A with our audience, so do have some questions up your sleeve or comments. First, I would like to bring up our very special first guest. She is a freelance writer, critic and film historian who contributes regularly to Sight and Sound, The Guardian, Criterion, Indicator and the BBC, specialising in silent cinema and women in film. It is Pamela Hutchinson. It's lovely to have you here. It's very nice to be here. So specialist in silent cinema, but you're not going to be silent this evening. No, I'm going to talk a lot. Excellent. <laughs> That's what we want. Girls on film, talking about film. Yes. And you've recently been to a few film festivals? I have. I have been barely in the country. I've been to San Sebastian and seen lots of new films, lots of films directed by women. And I've been to a couple of archive film festivals recently. A silent film festival in Italy and the Lumiere Festival in Lyon, which is devoted to the entire history of cinema. So... Please bring me back up to speed in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that sounds magical, actually. It sounds lovely. Now, our next guest is a film programmer, writer, event producer, and podcaster. She is head of arts and culture at DICE, festival director of BAFTA Recognised Underwire Festival, co-host of the Bigger Picture podcast, and co-founder of the horror film collective, The Final Girls. Please welcome Anna Bogostaya. Thank you so much for having me. Well, as an Anna Smith, I'm very jealous of your glamorous surname, Anna Bogostaya. You're the first person <laughs> in my entire life has ever said that. You can have it. Should we swap? Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> Just to confuse It'll make people. my life so yeah. much easier. It will confuse me an awful lot. <laughs> <laughs> and probably the audience. So maybe for this, not. But I'll just pretend that I have a glamorous surname. Um, tell us more about Underwire. Um, well, Underwire, which just wrapped its 10th edition at the end of September, is the currently the only and the largest festival in the UK that celebrates female talent. Um, we showed almost 200 short films this year, all of them with a woman in the lead head of department role. So not just female directors, but um, female stories that can be directed by men sometimes, or screenwriters, composers, production designers, animators. So kind of underwear makes a really big point of recognizing women in different roles, especially those where they've statistically been underrepresented historically, and sadly, even today. You do an amazing job. Congratulations. Thank you. That's fantastic. And where can people find out about Underwire? Um, we've got uh, our website and all the social medias. Excellent. So it's underwirefestival.com. And we've just opened submissions as well for the next edition. Okay. Don't so stop. any filmmakers here, go for it. Yes. Good stuff. Please. So for our first section, we're going to talk about one of the biggest movies on current release. It's not very female. It's showing here at home. Let's have a look at the trailer. My mother always tells me... To smile and put on a happy face. She told me I had a purpose. 
to bring laughter and joy to the world. Is it just me? Or is it getting crazier out there? Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile, even though it's breaking. So that was, of course, Joker, the new DC film, directed by Todd Phillips, starring Joaquin Phoenix as Arthur Fleck in 1980s Gotham City. Uh, we won't do any spoilers, but I thought Joaquin put in an incredible performance in this. And on the big screen, kind of immersed in it, I found it quite mesmerising as a portrait of a deluded loner. But it has been dividing critics. Pamela, where do you stand? I'm afraid I, I'm not laughing. I'm not smiling <laughs> about Joker. Um, I was hugely looking forward to this film, actually. I thought it was a great idea. I thought uh, the best thing about Batman films are always the villains. They're always the most interesting. Gotham itself is a really interesting world. And uh, I love an origin story. Partly because I think superheroes are quite boring. Having all that power makes you a little bit dull, okay? So I did have very high hopes, and um, Joaquin Phoenix certainly didn't disappoint. He put everything into this movie. But I found it was a little bit like everything around him was very flat and very dissatisfying. And, uh, you know, maybe this is the curse of having a more historical bent, but every time it so flagrantly referred to other films, I felt it didn't quite match up to those films. So if you're going to keep reminding me about Scorsese and Chaplin, don't make me want to leave the cinema and go and watch those instead. (laughs) There is a lot of taxi driver in this film, isn't there? A lot of taxi driver, yeah. a lot of modern times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anna, where do you stand? A lot of the king of comedy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I completely agree with you in that my expectations were really high and also completely on board with you on Joaquin's performance. He never really disappoints, even in films that are middling or middle of the road. But I feel ultimately that, and I've sort of started disliking the film even more as time goes on since I've seen it. So kind of I was a bit mm, thinking about it and sort of not actively hating it directly after I saw it, but now I'm completely against it. I just think it's a really basic film. What about the female characters? Obviously you've got Zazie Beetz as a neighbour and Francis Conroy as his mother. I mean, obviously they're deliberately sidelined because Mm. they're sidelined in his psyche or at least put into a really unrealistic twisted position right i'll tell you what there is one moment that really resonated with me that i thought was actually really cleverly directed uh with sassy beats and um there's a moment kind of where there's a certain realization that happens and everything is on her face and it's Mm -hmm. quite subtle you know the film is not i would not call it subtle in any way (laughs) shape or form but that particular moment really stuck out with me because it says a lot with the visual language but also there's a lot of um of depth to kind of a a very recognizable female experience and i think without saying which moment this is anybody who's seen the film will recognize it and that's kind of quite empathetic and it shows an empathy with that particular character who does not get that much development that um it's maybe missing with the rest of the film but is a little more poignant than anything else with her character in particular i just want to give a quick shout out for another film it reminded me of which is slightly off offbeat but it's to die for you know because he's obsessed with being on tv and he's obsessed with rob de niro's character who was a tv presenter and i just love to die for and it's a much better film now the next film i want to talk about i've been lucky enough to see it's out today in cinemas october 23rd and it's terminator dark fate which is kind of a rebooted sequel to terminator 2 suggesting that the other sequels which people didn't like very much took place in a parallel universe It's directed by Deadpool's Tim Miller, and it stars the great Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor. And a cyborg from from the future comes back to protect young Danny in this one, and Sarah gets involved. 
Not only is Danny a woman, played by Natalia Reyes, but the cyborg is female, played by the great Mackenzie Davis. Arnold Schwarzenegger is in this film, I should warn you, but it's by far the most female-driven film in the series. So you've got three really different actresses all playing with each other, but they all have very, very distinct characters at the centre of the story. And I think, for me, that was incredibly refreshing and quite exciting and quite groundbreaking in some ways. Now... I am very excited to say that Girls on Film has a massive exclusive interview with all three of these actresses. Um, I sat down last week in a London hotel with Linda Hamilton, Natalia Reyes and Mackenzie Davis and we had a chat about feminism. What was, what was really nice is that when we were speaking they said, oh God, we normally sit and have these little sound bites and you know, journalists are saying to us, what's it like to be a strong woman? And you know, to actually sit down the three of them and have 20 minutes to properly discuss it between us, um, they really enjoyed it, as did I. Two days ago, I had this nice, simple life, and now it's a nightmare. If travel is searching, and home has been found, I'm not stopping. Linda, let's start with you. Obviously, you've been here since the beginning. I have. Um, but for this one specifically, what do you feel has shifted in sort of gender terms, if anything? Well, um, we have three amazing women, and they're right here in this room. But as Mackenzie actually pointed out, and you were right, that it really has always been a female-driven movie or a franchise. I mean... Yeah. Without Sarah Connor, there wouldn't be a franchise. So we've just um, added to that and expounded on that and made it three times as good because there are three of us here. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. It's fantastic. <laughs> Natalia, tell me a bit about your character. Obviously, I've seen the film for the listeners, where she's coming from. Well, Danny is this girl from Mexico City, and she's just... She has a simple life and, you know, she loves her family and she's little, just like me, but strong. And she she says what she thinks and she gets what she wants and she wants the best for her family and her father and her brother. And <clears throat> she just goes to work one day and suddenly there's a Terminator trying to kill her. So there's where it starts and then we have all this journey with these two amazing women that they get together and try to help me and uh, we all try to understand why is this guy after me. And that is so rare, isn't it, to see not just one, not just two, but three women at the centre of the story. And let me come to Mackenzie now and talk to you a bit about the spoiler-free, but in introduction to your character. Uh, I play Grace. She is a, a warrior character, a protector, and she, she came back from the future to protect Danny Ramos. And the movie is sort of untangling the mystery of why and, and how and what her future looks like. And, uh, yeah, with the, the three of us are sort of on a, a road trip together away from hell. And um, where is Sarah Connor when we meet her? What kind of uh, situation is she in? She's in a pretty dark place. Um, her mission has changed or basically been taken away. And so she is a woman without a country, a woman without a purpose, and um, is broken and lost and bitter. She's an island. And... Um, 
it's not nice. <laughs> and can I say, I, I think, don't think it's a spoiler to say that um, you and Mackenzie's characters have a slightly antagonistic relationship. Yes. Um, would you care to expand on that? <laughs> well, I can't say much. We both sort of have um, different approach. We have the same... Uh, sort of the same agenda. I basically insert myself into her agenda, <laughs> and um, that does not make her happy, but we also have different approaches how to handle that agenda, so that makes for some very interesting moments. Um, and I think, actually, if we can speak about women in film, mm -hmm. what makes this film interesting and, and different in terms of you know, the, the female element is that we're not Charlie's Angels, all with a shared mission. We're not Wonder Woman, where all of us are fighting the same cause yeah. or fighting for the same cause. You know, I think it is that the, the roughness and the, the differentiation between our purposes and our um, way of achieving them that makes it very interesting. That's so true, because I was feeling watching it that I hadn't ever seen anything with three such different central female characters. As you say, they're not part of this kind of like cheerleading team. They really all have a totally different agenda, don't right. they? Right, and, and full-on, um, you know, characters that, I mean, that differ. So that makes it interesting. How do we win? We win by keeping you alive. <laughs> Mackenzie, let me talk to you about um, your entrance into the film, because I feel that plays into some really lovely kind of memories of some of the earlier Terminator films, but kind of shifts that around a bit. Yeah, I mean, Grace comes from the future. I think that's not a spoiler. Um, and uh, the way people arrive through the time portal that they have designed in the future that all the Terminators yeah. come from is um, they arrive naked and find clothes and sort of survive um, based on their, their ingenuity, which is interesting because we were trained by this Green Beret, Jack Nevels, and he used to operate, I don't actually know what it's called, but he was this sort of independent military agent, and he would be dropped with no passport, no money, absolutely nothing in a foreign country, and then just start going to... I mean, when I say the black market, in my mind, there is a market at night, but I know that the black market <laughs> is is another place. But he would just, through his, you know, charm and resourcefulness, figure out how to survive. So it is this, this sort of Green Beret type, uh, and again, I wish I knew the title of his role, but um, just this sort of really uh, ingenious way of surviving as a soldier. Um, but yes, I arrive naked, which is more interesting than that, and um, and have a great <laughs> fight scene. And, uh, and it was cool. It felt like one of those, I don't know, you get a few moments in your career where you're able to sort of step through the screen and feel like, oh, this is, I'm in the movie. And this felt like I was in the movie. I'm in the Terminator movie. It's an amazing moment. I mean, Linda, you've been on such a journey and obviously groundbreaking many, many years ago with this film originally. How do you feel that things have moved on since then, not just in this film, but in other films since then, uh, for women in action roles? Whew, loaded question. Um, 
obviously there is a bit of a, a trend, mm-hmm. I think, going now. And everybody wants to talk about empowerment. And, you know, really, it's not just that women are doing it. It's that women are doing it well. Um, we didn't really take up that banner to, okay, we're going to make women so proud. You know, we don't start out... Um, Sort of saying, we are going to change the world for uh, women in action films. You know, we don't have those intentions. I certainly, when I was doing the first one, didn't think, well, I'm not sure that I was iconic after the first one. But as I did the second one, you know, did I ever think that, oh, wow, I'm going to be an action icon? You know, that only exists later if the product is good. Um, so we certainly are proud of what we've done and things have shifted a lot for females since then. I think these things do go in cycles and what we see now, um, in two years, people say, ah, not another female action. You know what I mean? These things cycle and recycle. And you know what? There have always been strong women on screen different kind of strength, but I don't know that women have always been shortchanged. You know, we've seen fantastic, strong females in the 40s, and just because they weren't fighting and acting like men does not make them um, less strong. So I think it's very interesting. It's cyclical. And I'm a little tired of the conversation, but if it makes women out there feel stronger and empowered, then that's okay, too. Evening. Who's locking your weapon? Expect a big ping, brother. My whole body's a weapon. Sorry. I don't always want to play strong women. That would be boring as hell for an actress. I want to play incomplete women. I want to play funny women. I want to play women that aren't capable. Because that's what makes me an actress is that we can embrace all the forms of women, of womanhood, and the fact that I think maybe it's more interesting, not that we're strong women, but that we're three women carrying a film at all. Natalia, tell me how you feel about the future for you in terms of the kind of scripts that are coming your way as a young actress now. I think it's also part of the same conversation, kind of. Uh, for me, when, when I got this audition and it was like a Terminator but it was all secret around it and I didn't really know the script or the character or what it was if it was a remake or if it was a series or what you know just until I, I went to LA and I, I you know I went to this audition this callback and suddenly Linda Hamilton was there and I was like this is insane you know like I, I, I thought wow they are you know taking me to LA but for sure like this has to be I'm Latina I'm Colombian it's gonna be a really small character and it's gonna be the maid number 14 Mm. or a prostitute or a drug dealer you know like that's also in your mind you know like how deep that system has you know like gotten and and I was like and suddenly like Linda Hamilton was auditioning with me this has to be a really important maid you know and and then like yeah and then I was like you know this is not a maid and it's not a wow you know like things are changing and I think this is what the world is looking like now I think Hollywood's changing and the world's changing because that's real and it's fair and it's time you know Ah, very well said that's it so I, I, I hope you know like this is just the beginning of a career that I'm not doing the same cliches or, you know, like stereotypes. I can just like perform whatever. 
My name is Sarah Connor. I hunt Terminators. I have to say, when the credits came up, I was looking for female names and I didn't see as many as I would have liked. Um, and it's something that we're always talking about. What can we do, I mean, to change that? I mean, would you ever do that kind of um, inclusion rider, for example, that Frances McDormand suggested? Yeah, I think I... I would. I mean, I think that's also one of those things that as you accrue more power in your career, then you get to make choices like that. And so there are things that I do now that I couldn't have done five years ago. Um, I've been really lucky. I've worked with a ton of female directors um, and I'm not by design, but because they happen to be directing the movies and the TV shows that I was working on. So I, I've but I, I fully agree that with every sort of, with more power that you acquire, that you should apply that to something. I think inclu inclusivity writers are a great idea. I think any sort of, to correct any sort of systemic imbalance, there needs to be a period of uncomfortable um, effort where it's not going to happen naturally just because we wish it into place. You have to make gestures that maybe to some people feel uh, like there's now an inequality in favoring certain people. But if something is an invisible power, you can't correct it by just wishing it into place. You you have to yeah. make active sort of noticeable gestures. So sort of positive discrimination in a, in a way or just, or just making, yeah, making the effort and having a podcast like Girls on Film, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell us about the future for this franchise. Are you allowed, to, you know, anything? Are you going to reunite? Can we speak of it? We can speak of it, but I don't think a single one of us knows um, what's up next. Thank you all so much for coming on Girls on Film. I really, really appreciate it. It's been lovely to meet you. Yeah. I'm going hunting. Oh, how amazing is Linda Hamilton? Uh, she's amazing. I think that Sarah Connor is one of the most important women from my childhood. Um, yes. <laughs> I think I just wanted to say something. When we we're talking about female representation in Joker, some people mm -hmm. think, well, that's a bit of a fish in a barrel. You know, some films are just generally about men and asking for great female representation is, is you know, just beside the point. I know Scorsese said something similar, but when I was young, I would watch these chase films between robots, effectively, Terminator. They're great movies. And they had space for a great, strong female character yes. who's become at the heart of it. And, you know... I think it's different for people growing up now, but when I was growing up, I watched a great morass of films. Many of them were brilliant films, but I rarely found a Sarah Connor. These people mean so much more to you than you uh, perhaps even realise at the time. It's listening to her voice, listening to her talk yeah. about it now. I got quite emotional. So, yeah, I'm very excited to see this film on Sunday. Yeah. No, it's, it's exciting stuff. I am so pumped for it. Um, I adore Linda Hamilton, but also Mackenzie Davis. Yeah. I'm so excited to kind of to see that kind of badass female Terminator as well. And her character breaks new ground in ways that tie into articles I've written for The Guardian in the past, which I cannot reveal. But oh. Yeah. oh. Yeah. Very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> More than one article? Because I can think of two right now that are quite interesting. Well, there was one about time travel. Yes, Check it out. That's the one I yeah. thought it might Check be. Check it out. All right. Because I love time travel. So, yeah. Mm. Anyway, Terminator. Check it out. Next, we're going to talk about a book which is upcoming and really plays into a lot of the sort of topics that we talk about on Girls on Film. It's called She Found It at the Movies. And it talks about female desire. So it's women writers on sex, desire, and cinema. It's edited by Christina Newland, who sadly could not be with us today. But we have two people here who've written for the book, so that is just perfect. Um, now, Anna, you contributed a chapter. What was it about? Um, it was about dancing men. Dancing men. Basically, yeah. It's called... <laughs> uh, and my chapter's called Dance Boy Dance. 
Um, and it's essentially traces um, kind of, well, I've got a particular obsession with kind of dance films mm-hmm. and all the different subgenres of it, most notably dance horror, uh, which there's about 10 films of. And then Gene <laughs> but, Kelly as and well. And also kind yeah. of in my chapter and kind of contribution to Christina's book kind of traces the lineage of on-screen dancing heartthrobs mm-hmm. and kind of the most unexpected of them as well. So kind of from Gene Kelly and to Channing Tatum uh, via Sam Rockwell and Patrick Swayze. Yeah. Oh, so there's Channing Tatum on the screen there. Um, Good times. Do you know what? Why don't we have a clip from Magic Mike as well? What the hell? Let's do it. Star of the show, Mr. Magic Mike. <laughs> I mean, do we need to ask you why you chose to write about Magic Mike, having seen that? Um, <laughs> no, I think there is um, there is something quite interesting about kind of some dancing man on screen. And Channing is a really good example of it. Not so much in Magic Mike 1, but very distinctly in the sequel, Magic Mike XXL. Because my whole kind of point in that chapter is that these scenes very much allow and embrace the female gaze in its most um, kind of basic form in the sense that it's all about allowing women to look. And it's all about kind of these men who very often also have a physique that does not necessarily lend them to be the nimble, gentle, kind screen figures, Gene Kelly being kind of the original classic example and Channing also being kind of the more contemporary version of that they um, are sort of bullish in their physique but by dancing they allow themselves to be gentle and they also allow for female desire to kind of fill the rest of the frame so to speak so they allow themselves to be looked at and they invite it and it doesn't feel aggressive, it doesn't feel domineering, it's all about kind of embracing what women want to project on them. Pamela, you wrote a rather different chapter. Do you care to share? I did, I did. I mean, you know, I wish I'd written just about Jean Kelly dancing. Um, but I wrote my chapters called Death Cults and Matinee Idols. Uh, apart from the word and, I love all those words uh, very strongly. <laughs> um, so I do have a focus on silent cinema as well as contemporary cinema. So I started with one of the most notable events from silent film history, which is the death of Valentino. And it started a thing that happened in my life. It happened, we were talking earlier, in your life. When you are a young woman and you love the cinema or you just love the magazines and a film star that you are you love very much dies there is a massive outpouring of grief that's very serious and very heartfelt and often people watching it who aren't teenage girls find it hard to accept and they're often quite sneery about it the newspaper coverage of these things is quite wild there's an awful lot of discussion of, of collective madness of people shooting people of people killing themselves all these kind of strange things and a sneering tone that these women don't really know what they're talking about these girls don't know what they're talking about they haven't even seen enough of the films they don't understand what it's all about they didn't even know the man but we know we know that people went crazy for Rudolph Valentino um, for James Dean for River Phoenix, for Heath Ledger. And I really wanted to get to the bottom of that and how healthy that kind of outpouring of desire mixed with grief can be. That's really interesting. And actually, the next film I wanted to just quickly flag up does talk about that teenage feeling in the sort of first crush. Um, this is Diary, Diary of a Teenage Girl, actually, by Marielle Heller um, in, from 2015. And I thought this was such a strong piece of work in terms of the unapologetic 
lust of a young girl, right? Yeah, I mean, being a young woman, you do think about sex. It has has to be said, but it is rarely said. And mm-hmm. this film says it with such gusto and such charm and such a bold voice. I mean, she's drawing, writing, talking, thinking about sex the whole way through the film. And it's also in its own way quite innocent and sweet. You know, it's not trying to suggest that we need to sort of paint a picture of corruption to talk about these things. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of this film and all her films. Yeah. And are you a fan of this one? I absolutely adore it. It's yeah. so filthy. And <laughs> part of it as well, why it feels so refreshing and unique, um, is that there's such a long tradition, especially in American cinema, of kind of boys sexual coming of age or kind of young men um, kind of, you know, lusting after you know, usually women, or kind of trying to, you know, lose their virginity or whatnot. It's sort of the basis of half of um, American comedies, essentially. But there's not that many from the other side. There's not that many um, depictions of women actively lusting, especially as teenagers, especially while they're trying to figure out what they like, what they're like, who they're interested in, who they're attracted to, how they engage with their own sexuality, whether that's kind of through her artwork and her writing or her talking or thinking about it even or kind of fantasizing so it feels so radical in so many ways another film which is extremely different is Elle the Paul Verhoeven film and um, it's come up because I, I you know it was mentioned by Christine who edited the book um, but I'm not a big fan of this one I thought Hubert Isabelle Hubert was great in it I don't know if anyone here has seen Elle with Isabelle Hubert it's um, I mean just try to describe it it's kind of a sexual thriller I suppose yeah. very twisted um, but I didn't really like her misanthropic central character and I didn't it was. It's very problematic, shall we say, when it comes to female sexuality. I mean, th- this is a film that's about sexual violence as much as it is mm. about sexuality, and it's also about sexism. Um, it's it's about a lot of things that are very difficult. I think I'm pretty much with you in the L camp, but I would say that again, it's one of these films we were talking about a little earlier. Isabel Huppert exudes a kind of confidence in this film that is very attractive. That's something that women are often uh, excited about mm-hmm. on screen, right? Um, yes, and I'd like to pick up on something you mentioned before, Anna, is that where one of the things that stands out from this film, and it is it is heavy and it's problematic, and I, to be honest, haven't watched it since it came out originally, is the fact that we're not that used to female misanthropes on screen. Yeah. It That almost seems more... Um, aggressive in retrospect than a lot of the other imagery that we see in the film. It's like this woman who just does not care about anyone. And that seems so violent and so rare to see on screen. And, you know, no one else could have played that except Hubert. Well, there is one misanthrope that I do really like, and that is Linda Fiorentino in The Last Seduction, the 1994 film. Um, And anyone here seen that? Oh, you must oh, seek it out you. immediately. Um, it's it's a, it's a so-called classic, right? And um, I mean, it's about a kind of heist job gone wrong. Woman leaves her husband, runs off with the money, doesn't care about stitching him up, and then checks up with a, some poor, unfortunate small town guy. Um, and it's 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 not so much about desire, but it's kind of harnessing the power of female sexuality because she has massive control over every man she meets, even though she's a bitch in in her own words. Um, but but she uses that so cleverly. She's, this is one of my favorite films of all time. I absolutely adore her. So this, the central character, Bridget Gregory, who's played by Linda Fiorentino, um, she's so sexually confident. Yeah. She's so aggressive. And this whole film is actually, it's not so much about desire. I'd say it's a form of desire because it's about hunger and greed. She is so wildly ambitious. Nobody can stand in her way. She is a hustler in every single possible way. She will get what she wants by whichever means possible. And there's a beautiful moment in the film where she's sort of teaching her a little portion of her mind tricks to her um well 
to the, the the young man who she's sleeping with in the small town, who she does not care about. He is just a patsy for her, and he's so over the heels obsessed with her because she's so unlike any other girl that he's ever met. Um, but she she kind of tells him that it's playing with people's heads that's the fun, that's her thrill. It's about manipulation. It's about being smarter than anyone else in the room. It's about using their perception of what they expect her to be for to her advantage. And that's such a powerful female figure and so rarely seen on screen as well. She is just wild and absolutely um, just such an unethical character. And I kind of really worship her for that because it's there's very rare opportunities to see a woman who's so villainous and heinous and so absolutely watchable. Like her charisma on screen is just exuberant. I mean, watching Bridget, smoke is one of the things I remember mostly about this film. I mean, not so much the actions as her, her persona and that wonderful hair. And I think it's interesting to throw back to something that Linda Hamilton said, which I love to say, uh, you know, uh, when she was talking about women in the 40s and 50s being strong, uh, Linda Frontino in this film is Barbara Stanwyck and Betty Davis and Lauren yep. Bacall and Veronica Lake and all of these people wrapped up into one, but, you know, with some weaponry. And with, and it is neo-noir and it just shows how one of the most interesting spaces for, for female-led films has been these kind of reinterpretations of film noir where you give women slightly more agency in the film. And it's a great example of that. If you love a classic film noir and you like to see a woman smoke very well... <laughs> <laughs> Then, yeah, I really highly recommend this film. Agreed. And we're excellent blazers as well. Yeah. Yeah, interesting variety of black and white and white and black and then a little bit of grey at the end, but it's, it's awfully done. Right, last seduction, check it out. Now, one of the first films I wrote about university in gender and popular culture was a film which I think speaks very interestingly to this topic, certainly for me and probably many millions of other women. Um, it's directed by Ridley Scott, but the writer is female, Callie Curry. And I think it's an interesting example of generally the female point of view of male beauty. It's Thelma and Louise. Let's have a look at a clip. Well, see, first you pick your place, right? Uh -huh. Then I just sit back and I'll watch it for a little while. Wait for that right moment to make my move, see? Uh -huh. that's, that's something you got to know up here. That shit cannot be taught. Uh -huh. And then, uh... Oh, shit, I don't want to talk about this. What? Like, dear. All right. Then I... Waltz right in. Yep. Then I just kind of waltz on in, and I say, Ladies, gentlemen, let's see who wins the prize for keeping their cool. Simon says, everybody down on the floor. Now, nobody loses their head, then nobody loses their head. Uh, you, sir. Yeah, you do the honors. Take that cash, you put it in that bag right there. You got an amazing story to tell your friends. If not, well, you got a tag on your toe. You decide. Simple as that. Then I just slip on out and uh, get the hell out of Dodge, yeah. Well, you know what? It's an iconic moment. Pamela's just, we're all going a bit red in the front here now. Um, but what's great about that is it's, it's in the context of a really strong feminist film. Um, and, we, you know, you know he's up to no good. Um, but it still very much gives women permission, doesn't it? As you were saying about Magic Mike, mm -hmm. to give that space of Scream Jean Davis's character to unapologetically find him attractive as a one-night stand, um, cheat on her no-good husband. Um, you know, the cute does super one night stand and it does it just brilliantly. Yeah, and um, Gina Davis um, representing the female gaze on screen and in the work that she does still, um, an absolute icon, if you're not aware of what the Gina Davis Institute does, mm. uh, incredible work. Uh, so yeah, I mean, this scene is 
well, very important to me personally. Uh, no, I, <laughs> this was quite a kind of, you know, coming of age scene for me to watch, but it's also one of the first films I wrote on. And I actually dragged out some of my film studies textbooks recently and found that two of them have Thelma and Louise on the front. This film was absolutely radical and it really changed people's idea of what um, popular cinema could be and what it could do with female characters. Susan Sarandon, if you don't know, is the other woman in it. And it's it's an incredible uh, ride. Um, Ridley Scott, for a while, was known as one of our greatest feminist film directors, what with Alien and so on. But uh, we've moved on. We do let more women make films now. Uh, yeah, that scene is incredibly powerful, incredibly uh, attractive, if you know what I mean. Um, visually, obviously, Brad looks great, but he's a really seductive chap in this uh, scene, uh, despite the armed robbery. I find that it conflicts you in all the right ways <laughs> well said Anna care to add, add anything to that one I mean that was just very beautifully put um, <laughs> I was just going to add that Brad when he when he plays a foolish character when he's pretending to be foolish um, he's just so joyful to watch he's got mm -hmm. such great comedic timing in this scene in this film both for um, Gina Davis's character and for the audience just allows us to bask in him in his uh, charm and his charisma in his looks obviously and damn it that man just likes being shirtless on screen doesn't he <laughs> yeah. he just runs very warm blooded I hear <laughs> yes um, yeah it's, not, it's a thing with blondes I think <laughs> right well in the Q&A I'd love to invite people later to chat about what they find interesting on screen about uh, women in desire we will come to that shortly um, we're going to talk finally about award season because obviously that's sort of coming up now in autumn as film critics we find ourselves going to see all these amazing films they've had lots of hype and lots of money put into them promotion and hopefully just done amazing um, so we've got the Oscars and the BAFTAs in 2020 um, we thought we'd round up some of the front runners share with you what we thought might be big. We haven't seen them all yet, but these are some of the things that people are talking about. The first one is Judy, starring Renee Zellweger. So I personally thought she was absolutely brilliant as Judy Garland in this. Yeah, I mean, Judy Garland is obviously a character, a, a character, a real person, even a pseudonym for a real person who we all feel we know we've seen on screen, even if you've only seen a few clips. The performance that Renee Zellweger gives here really you know, it makes you think that Judy Garland was quite a lot like Renee Zellweger. She has every little mannerism down pat and it's actually quite a heartbreaking performance. And there is this little mini trend of these films about stars at the end of their life. For me, this isn't quite a film stars don't die in Liverpool, but her performance in itself, I mean, as you say, it, it lives above and beyond the film. And by the time she finally sings that song, um, you may find that you like me have done one, two, three cries. It's a three cry movie. Three I did, I did, because I had to. Like, is that full cries or just choking it back? No, it had full, full, full silent. Tears. Of course, because yes. I'm a critic, I'm a professional. And you're a silent critic, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, silent cry. Yeah. <laughs> I would love that to be the new rating system for awards contender yeah. movies. Three, um, three cries three out of five. That's probably yeah. about a good rating for an award contender. I think three, yeah. three cries is actually good. I mean, there are some films that make you a mess, and then, you know, you lose your critical faculties. So I was awake, I was alert, I just had three cries. And if they cry on screen, that obviously works very well in their favour. Does she cry on screen? <sighs> She certainly has a lot of meltdowns. She does. There is a scene in which she does, she does eat a fork full of cake, which is one of the most heartbreaking things I've seen in cinema for a long, long time. A genuinely beautiful scene. Really, really hard to think about. 
I haven't seen it. Well, I, I, I highly wait. recommend that you do. And I think it does go into actually the Hollywood system yeah. and it kind of the serious elements of how she was bullied and told yeah. what to do. And yeah. as a child actor, I mean, horrendous things. Um, it has yeah. a very strong thesis about a particular thing that happened in Hollywood. So mm. it, it may very well do well in the Oscars because it's about a Hollywood star. It says how great they were. And it, it, it traces her trouble back to very specific things that happens, not the whole system. Yeah. Yeah, and I must say I don't always get on with Renee Zellweger. I, mean, I liked her in Bridget Jones, but then there's been many movies in the wasteland which I just thought, no, 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 and her altered appearances confused me. Um, but it really works for this. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever happened, she really looks right for this, and yeah. and and her mannerisms, and and I do love those films a little bit like Stan and Ollie, which actually I didn't like mm. as much because it was you know Stan and Ollie, but this is Judy Garland. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, you've got to be honest about your fandoms, yeah. yeah you know, I'm more interested in Judy Garland, and um, but it's about a specific time in their life when they came to the UK, mm. and there's an absolutely brilliant scene in Judy where she ends up back at the flat of these two gay guys in London, and it's just absolutely brilliant. You can just imagine it completely happening that you yeah. know this lonely star actually just goes, "Can we go for dinner?" Yeah, and then there's, they have to go back to their flat and have bad scrambled eggs. It's really good. I think that that seems very important, partly because it's one of the things in the film that is entirely made up. And some people do have a problem with this film because it deviates a little bit from the facts, mm. and so that the children have been quite anti it. The art may mitigate against it at the Oscars, but I think that sometimes in the fiction you can tell quite a lot of truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll let that off because I love that scene. The next one I want to talk about briefly is Marriage Story. That's out in the 15th of November, and that's by Noah Baumbach, who's um, a filmmaker who I like very much. you seen this one, Anna? Yes, I have indeed. What um, do you think? It is a gorgeous, heartbreaking film. Yeah. Uh, I can't give it a cry rating because I was too stressed when I saw it, but it was one of those films that just keeps you gripped to your seat whatever your personal situation is it will find a way to connect with you so it's about a divorce basically it's about a divorce yeah. but it's about love it's about um family it's about both romantic love the sort of love that exists with someone who you deeply care about and you might have been deeply in love with at one point and what happens when that the, rom the romance fizzles away but the love is still there so it's it's a profound it's a very profound movie but it's also incredibly um, well directed but it's entirely invisible so everything feels deeply choreographed Baumbach is such a precise director but none of it feels forced there is no flashiness there everything is completely on Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson's shoulders and they're so earnest and I think particularly Driver is going to be um, a big awards contender in he the season coming up. He has a little bit of a teary moment doesn't he which I think will stand yeah. him in good stead a monologue. Um, he's very good in this so I think him for leading actor and maybe Scarlett will be nominated but I think it's a tough one because it's more his movie. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But she's really she's also really good in Jojo Rabbit actually as well um, so I think it's I mean she's having another great year when doesn't she have a good year she's fantastic. Um, another sort of quite masculine film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, oh. called Tarantino. Um, I think, do you think this could be his year for maybe director? I mean, there's a long tradition of the Oscars rewarding films about Hollywood. And mm. this is probably as cuddly a film about Hollywood as Tarantino is going to make. <laughs> Up yeah. till the end. You know, um, it's not what he did for German cinema in Inglorious Bastards, that's for certain. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, yeah. It, I mean, to be honest, apart from, you know, has everyone here seen it? Apart from the thing that we wouldn't talk about anyway, uh, it's an incredibly beautiful, likeable film. And, you know, you really get to bask in some old school movie star charisma with Mr. Pitt again, who Once I think again. has had a brilliant year, obviously. So I think it's 
I think it's going to charm a lot of people and I think a lot of people are going to find the nostalgia buttons are pushed despite mm. everything. <laughs> Hollywood on Hollywood. Um, I'd like to mention a few more kind of female-focused projects. Mm. We've got um, American Woman, which came out recently. Oh, yeah. um, getting some nods from the audience there. Excellent. It's in select UK cinemas now. And Sienna Miller, I have always thought it's fantastic and I've always wanted to see her at the centre of the action. Finally, she gets that role. Finally. She's absolutely brilliant in American Woman. Jake Scott film, another great Scott. Um, and some films from female directors. I haven't seen them all yet myself. Um, I have seen Hustlers, oh, J-Lo. She should definitely yeah. win everything. That. Win, um, <laughs> yeah. Best dance, best rhinestone, best wearing of a fur coat, oh. which I'm sure was a category in the 40s. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe this would just be a new awards um, a new award season created just for J-Lo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Best wearing yeah. of a fur. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm hearing great things about Marielle Heller's A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood. That's mm. out 6th of December 2019. Also looking forward to Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Very much December so. December 26, 2019. Queen and Slim, Melina Matukas. That mm. looks really interesting. Out January 31st with Danny Clear and Jodie Turner-Smith. And what we always like to talk about in Girls on Film, since I saw it in Cannes, Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Such a gorgeous <sighs> film. I'm seeing next God. week. It's, it's pretty much a near-perfect film. It's extraordinary. One of the best films I've ever seen. Out February 2020, you'll have to wait for that unless you're listening in February 2020, in which case, yay. Yeah. Um, any others to, to highlight in terms of the awards? I think we've done quite an exhaustive job here, but the audience might have something to say. I just wanted to say that as regards Hustlers, I mean, I, I was joking about fur coats, but actually I think for writing and directing, Lorene Scapari mm. did an amazing job. It's a yeah. great ensemble film. Uh, it's a, it, We use that word dramedy, and I think we use it when we don't really know what the film's about, but this is a film that combines comedy and drama in a really productive way and tells a really... Really exciting story with moral ambiguity that it absolutely revels in. And that's really at the heart of Jello's performance. But I think we need to make sure people don't sleep on Hustlers. Mm, I'd also um, like to bring up The Farewell, which has been in cinemas already by Lulu Wang, um, which was in Sundance earlier this year. And it's just an extraordinary, moving, very personal piece of cinema. And I think potentially maybe, maybe not for director, but potentially for best original script. And maybe even Aquafina. As a, yes. quite a stand-up performance there. That's a good shout. Um, we interviewed her in our Sundance special. If people want to go back and listen to the Lily Wang interview, but yeah, original script, good shout. Um, I was wondering, um, going back to Joker, if you guys could kind of talk about um, how you felt the representation of the mother character, um, what you kind of thought about that, because she kind of. Um, um, the kind of represent- representation of that character kind of conforms to the stereotype of the hysterical woman. So I was wondering what you guys thought about that and how you feel that's problematic, and etc. So I think it sort of speaks a little bit to when I was talking about noir earlier. I mean, you know, if that film... To me, that film setting her up as the kind of femme fatale. You know, he needs to find out his mother's story to find out his own story, to find out his own destiny. And yet there's this point where, as you say, she's presented as the hysterical woman. She she keeps telling you, she keeps telling the audience what her story is. She keeps telling her son what her story is. He doesn't listen. He only listens to the paperwork. And then when he finds out the story... We don't have any need for that character anymore. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. And that was actually, for me, the most troubling female representation in the film. I mean, as you, as you uh, are quite astutely mentioned, Sassy Peets has that moment of recognition, which is quite powerful, but there's nothing like that for the mother character. Yeah, I completely agree with that. She gets completely dropped to one side. And in fact, I think 
Um, I think the film is very problematic in general, how it deals with mental illness. It's quite flippant. And it's quite, I think it lacks a lot of empathy, both with the character of Arthur Fleck and with his mother's character. And um, the way that it portrays her history as well is... Um, quite manipulative but also very it feels very cruel and it feels also despite kind of this build-up of their relationship kind of which borderlines on the codependent which is something we've seen a lot in cinema especially kind of with the sort of um thrillers and darker grittier kind of character studies uh that todd phillips clearly adores and references in the film and in a lot of his interviews as well um but it doesn't quite go deep enough because I don't think it really respects the characters that surround Arthur. And to a degree, I think he makes Arthur slash Joker quite um, a reductive character because it just tries to give him these sort of very simple explanations for his kind of chaotic energy, which kind of defeat the purpose of Joker, in my opinion, which is why for me it failed as a as an origin story for such a complex and kind of powerful character. Um and kind of kind of part of the reason why I more and more dislike the film, kind of the more I think about it, is because of the very little depth that all of the characters surrounding Arthur have. It, he's got no time for them and the director has no time for them. Um so he's sort of not paid attention. They're just props for him and you know that that kind of moment of Zazie beats I almost um is the only redeeming moment where she's sort of treated as uh, a human being in her own right and not uh, a prop for Arthur's kind of story and his development but I, I felt that isn't it more supposed to be from his point of view so therefore she's inherently they're inherently marginalized and inherently pushed to the side I mean I totally agree with what you're saying but yeah I actually yeah. thought I mentioned that on the bigger picture yeah. podcast there was a couple of moments that I thought actually this this is quite interesting if the whole film is supposed to be presented to us as this is entirely a twisted point of view because it's entirely subjective from Arthur's uh, particular take on the world. But it sort of also fails to commit to that as well, which is for me why it failed. Like that would have been fascinating. I would have completely been on board with that. Um, but it doesn't really go all the way with it. It just kind of slips, it slips into that point of view approach when it's needed. And there was a question in the next row there. Hiya, just talk about award season. Big, big yes to J-Lo, by the way. Hustlers, I want to see it win the Oscar. Um, it just reminded me of something I saw on Twitter earlier about a discussion of whether we shouldn't have a best actress and a best actor. We should just have the one category. Um, I just would like your opinion on that, really. Such a tricky one, isn't it? Mm. Um yeah, because it does conform to this kind of like, there's a man and there's a woman and the idea of a romantic lead. And then, you know, the, Olivia and Coleman pointed it out last year when you've got a film with three fantastic female leads, but only one can be the lead, then that is a problem. But at the same time, that's going to be really difficult, just making it unisex. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting what the Golden Globes do, where they differentiate by genre. Because, for example, the idea of comparing um, Brad Pitt and Ad Astra and... J-Lo and Hustlers is one thing, but one thing, J-Lo and Hustlers versus Judy Garland, uh, Renee Zellweger as Judy Garland, they're all completely different things, you know. And so, you know, at the moment, I think F1 is very, very comfortable with the gender divide purely because we have to cut it one way or the other. Um, maybe we need to get into, uh, yeah, genre divides and, you know, perhaps, you know, best dancing man. Yes. <laughs> that, yeah. I, may, I may just have that award. Yeah, I would maybe, vote. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we can just organise that. Yeah. We can do that, I mean, I believe. We can have the Sam Rockwell Award for Best um, Music Video <laughs> Dancing. This is a spin-off podcast. 
Maybe we need some girls on film awards. Yeah. Something to think about. I think that would be yeah. a very popular idea Excellent. to celebrate your birthday. Yeah. Yeah. I've right. <laughs> got an idea here. Thank you. That's a great question. Um, just going back to what you were saying about the female gaze, do you think that's. Uh, I probably agree with what I'm about to say, but um, yeah. Do you think female gaze is more like important to focus on rather than criticizing a male gaze in terms of looking at films and looking at just like art in general? Yeah, I think on Girls on Film, we try to strike that balance because, you know, we want to celebrate female cinema, you know, and just as people and get excited about what people are doing right. But I think it's also important to be watchful about what's being done wrong um, and not necessarily bang on about it, but um, not let people get away with it if there's a shocking representations going on. Um, so I think you can you can do both and you can you can celebrate. But yeah, it's really important to celebrate. And something we always say is really important to support great female filmmakers in the first weekend when it comes out because that's when the decisions are made and if you don't go that opening weekend quite often it will then get dropped and it will never get seen again so just I think you vote with your feet and as well as celebrating and shouting about it on Twitter and, and on podcasts we just support female point of view by going to the cinema yeah and I think just to add to that, kind of what's really interesting about kind of the, um, especially kind of the work that's coming up with podcasts like this or with Christina's book, it's about also looking back and embracing what female audiences um, take and think and how can they can appropriate or even further a discussion about a particular film, a star, a moment, a niche or whatever you want about art or cinema or TV, uh, you know, that's kind of what's interesting is those different point of views that are coming at art that we may have not been able to engage with before. So people who are saying interesting things about art is always welcome. And the fact that kind of social media and different opportunities, you know, in broadcasting, podcasts such as this, and different things and kind of more accessibility for just a more bigger variety of content but also a bigger variety of outlets that you can engage with if you're interested in reading or listening to criticism or engaging with it in that way but also if you want to practice it and if you want to become a critic or you have something to say um, it becomes so fascinating to see how certain films that may be the marketing departments of the original releases deemed not for you um, in particular, but you have a very strong feeling about them or have something quite um, poignant or strong to say about them, then that's the gaze that, you know, personally I'm interested in. Like, I'm interested in seeing what people who may not, not have the opportunities to speak about film or art or uh, or television before have to say about it because that's where you see different and interesting points of view. And just, I mean, only really to underline that, you know, I think that the male gaze is a is a term that was used to talk about the dominant style of production of cinema, you know. So whenever we talk about the female gaze, in a way, it's inherently more interesting because it's not part of that establishment in a way. The female gaze, I mean, when I work on the silent era, I'm talking about a time when the audiences were predominantly female, so many female screenwriters, and a lot of the, the critics and writers in the magazines were female as well. And still, you know, you know, we morphed into this idea of cinema being made by men for men. Women have been taking things off the screen that were not meant for them for such a long time and so the female gaze is this kind of reading against the grain that we all do with films you know like you know I went into Joker thinking I was going to like it I thought it was going to speak to me you know I'm always looking for that I'm always looking for a great woman I'm always watching Sienna Miller and things and thinking she's good and she doesn't get a big role until American Woman so you know the female race is such uh, the female gaze is such a uh, productive way to look at things and then they're not the same thing um but yeah especially you know when you say we've got 
such great female filmmakers now that it yes. does become more of a kind of equal footing but yeah we're always looking at films in exciting new ways and that's what's great about a multiple you know a room full of people with different opinions yeah and you know well that's one of the lovely things about doing girls on film for the past year is the kind of support we've had from people whether it's listeners whether it's a-listers whether it's guests on the show who just all want to celebrate female film and you know just celebrate the female point of view and the excitement around it and the response we've had has been amazing so thanks to everybody Thanks everyone at home for coming tonight. Many thanks to my guests, Anna Bogatsteyer, Pamela Hutchinson. Please give them both a round of applause. Huge thanks to Hedda Archbold from HLA Productions for producing. Many thanks to Tom Wally for audio producing this evening. Many thanks to our intern, Jessica Mason, and to Home for having us today. Um, now hopefully you've all downloaded Girls on Film already. You can get onto Spotify, iTunes, etc., SoundCloud. But once again, it's so helpful if you can do that and tell your friends and leave us a nice little review if you like it. And, you know, revisit our past shows and share them with your friends. All that really helps us to continue and continue spreading the word. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Anna Smith Journo. We are next at home here in Manchester on December the 3rd. 2019 so we hope to see you then I don't think he's gonna apologize nah I don't think so